Welcome to Weta Digital's Unsupervised, a podcast series that brings you personal perspective from the front line of modern visual effects. This is a closed door session, so come on in and shut the door behind you. Hi, my name is Max, and today we have joining us animation supervisor Annika Friss. I've been working at Weta Digital for about nine and a half years now. And Shadow in the Cloud was my first animation supervisor role, which was actually a real pleasure to be a female Kiwi animation supervisor working with a female Kiwi director. So, um, yeah, real pleasure there. And visual effects supervisor Stephen Unterfranz. Everyone calls me Unter. I am not a female, but <laughs> I, I am now a Kiwi, um, despite my accent. I've been at Weta for just about 10 years now this time in a number of different roles. Um, I was here back in the day for Rings, and I've been VFX supervisor for a few years. This is the first time that Annika and I have worked together in these capacities, but by no means the first time we've worked closely together on shots and shows before. So, uh... What a Digital's work on Shadow in the Cloud started out as us looking at the Gremlin. I, I think the filmmakers were considering going down the path of having a guy in a suit, and we uh, heard about that and dissuaded them from that approach and you know went through and sort of described some of the benefits of our larger projects that, that would be leveraged in any kind of creature work we did just by default. And so I think that alone convinced them, but the scope also included uh, quite a bit of environment work in a, in a bit of an unconventional way in that we did a lot of aerial projection uh, on set, so sort of like pre-VFX. And then the work would have also included all the set extensions, which are largely based around a B-17, but that included about half a dozen different set pieces. And then, of course, effects work, explosions and fighting in water and that kind of stuff. Um, I think it was originally bid as 150 or so shots, and that scope increased um, as, we went through the, as we went through the shoot. Yeah, from a motion point of view, um, our biggest work was on the Gremlin, obviously. Um, and aside from that, we did a lot of work on the B-17 planes as well as the Zeros and some props like the radio bag that Garrett is holding throughout the movie. I remember um, when I first started on this film, and I don't know if it was the same for you, Unter, but the first sequence we worked on was actually at the end of the movie. <laughs> and it was this quite violent sequence um, with the gremlin and Garrett fighting. And yeah, it was almost strange because we were... Uh, being quite violent with this gremlin character who we hadn't got to know yet. So it almost felt unjustified until we worked backwards in the movie and, and kind of saw the things he was doing. So even though we were aware of it, but um, when you're actually working on the creature, you do get very <laughs> kind of, it becomes part of you in a way. Yeah. <laughs> you get attached. I, I mean, that was, that was, it's great that um, like a, a, a few people, in, including, including Roseanne and, and Kath as well, the, post-production supervisor, like a few people said, um, you know, I, I almost feel sorry for him. If I didn't know, if I hadn't seen the rest of the movie, I would feel bad for him at the end when mm. he's getting his ass kicked. And, of course, we would have we would have queued those shots up early because there were water effects sims to, to get underway. And, and, of course, that's that's more time-consuming than not having 
your characters fighting in water. Yeah, they were the more technically challenging shots in the film, the, the whole end sequence in, yeah, in and, daylight in the water. And Yeah, and exactly, and the daylight as well. I also, I also feel like, you know, our asset, he's hiding and lurking in the shadows for most of the movie, but it was good to see him fully exposed, you know, and him, him still holding up, but also feeling a little bit naked and a little bit pathetic. But that was that was definitely Rosehan's goal as well, though. Like, at some point during that beatdown, you're supposed to actually feel bad for him and a little bit afraid of of um, Chloe's character Garrett, because um, there's that there's that expression the the mad dog Madonna was was how Roseanne put it for that those final few shots of her where where she's not this sort of graceful heroine that's that's overcome you know adversity or whatever it's like she's actually kind of crossed over into something a little bit beyond a badass and so so I think it was cool that our design of the gremlin was able to you know go from what we were talking about earlier where it's this sort of terrifying again to use Roseanne's word abject creepy just disturbed little thing to then actually feel bad for him a little bit it's not it's not so much that he he evolved like we didn't really have too much resource to kind of explore a whole bunch of options for what the character could be he kind of needed to be settled before we got into shooting and and to the point where tim had um had looked at the measurements of the gremlin and he had like crouched down into into a gremlin pose and put his measurements against it and you know like to kind of demonstrate that he could position himself in a way that fit the proportions and and even the literal measurements of the of the gremlin but i guess i i guess rather than evolving it was more like um pushing the full expression of those two opposite ends of of what he was mm. And there's very much a metaphor, or the, the gremlin's quite a metaphor on this film, right? Because um, Garrett is very harassed by this gremlin at the start. And that kind of, yeah, basically this is an empowerment movie, right? Where at the start she doesn't feel empowered at all. She's very much um, overrun by the men on her plane and this gremlin who are just harassing her completely. And how that shifts through the movie by the end. Yeah, she's very much kind of on top of this gremlin. Like, she's, yeah, she's overcome the gremlin. So it's almost like overcoming the misogyny in the film, which was a big theme of this movie. Yeah, yeah, and the the gremlin conversation, I mean, that, again, goes back to that first sort of meeting with the filmmakers where I had read the script a, a day or two before and, you know, we were we were talking through what the themes of the movie are and what the what the gremlin actually is and i said at one point um that that i had a theory about you know that he's more than just a a creature running around on the plane and i i said well i i think he's misogyny incarnate and that phrase kind of stuck like everybody on the other side of the table kind of smiled because i think they were they were kind of excited that just through the script that had come across and then the description of the creature in the the original script clearly left it open for sort of someone else to to define what it needed to be. It was feather and fur and claws and spiders and bats and monkeys and lemurs and, you know, reference to just sort of all these horrible crawly things. 
Um, and I, I said at one point to Roseanne, I think it needs to be something that a biologist could taxonomically define and that it would, if you looked at an evolutionary tree, you could see the branch, the sort of weird dead-end branch of this thing that had sort of just quietly evolved somewhere in New Guinea or somewhere in the South Pacific where bats could just get much larger. Um, and and she was really into the idea of it being a bat and not a monkey, mm-hmm. which um, for all of us here at Weta is a you yeah. know a little a, a little bit of a change. Um, <laughs> yeah. we, we there's a lot of primates happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we very heavily looked at bats, not only for the body but for the facial reference. Um, and there are a lot of disgusting clips out there of bats um, biting into animals and just this really kind of feral, disgusting. <laughs> it was great reference for yeah, us because it gave yeah. us something to point at. Um, and we were also looking at rabid dogs, um, very angry kind of dogs exposing their teeth, um, snarling, all of that kind of motion we referred to, as well as some other unusual behaviours in creatures like the the tongue, which is a huge prominent part of this gremlin design. We ended up looking at crocodiles um, and the way that they vibrate their bodies in water as a mating ritual. Yeah, um, that was, so it was really interesting. That, that clip mm. is, is ululating the right word, like just that real high frequency, sort of almost, almost imperceivable. I mean, that you could see it more through the ripples in the water. Yeah. Um, and then there was that weird little gecko with the tongue flicking yeah, the and undulating tongue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because it, it it had um, this. We may stray into our first um, our first edit here, yeah. but um, we're doing our best to go for like an alien level, memorable, terrifying. The the word uh, Roseanne kept using was abject, just really familiar but unsettling, disturbing. And at one point, she found this reference of a hagfish, which is like a sort of an eel that sort of regurgitates a crazy toothy apparatus for boring into dead fish um so like i would have watched that clip a few times but the um catchphrase was vagina dentata and that the tongue of the gremlin was meant to in no uncertain terms sort of conjure up a a a sense of female genitalia but covered in, covered in teeth, um, and so we approached it as, as as if it was the thing's tongue, and it sort of just had this like so because we didn't want to get too carried away and have like a magical kind of a non anatomical thing happen, and we also didn't want to go too much like alien. So we were looking at like frigate birds have that big sack in their throat. Um, but just that this tongue sort of hangs back and and in its normal life it can chew on stuff with its regular bat teeth. But then um, we got into this whole story of like how the teeth in the tongue age and decay and there's sharp ones at the front and sort of more like molars at the back and then they and then they rot as they move out and they keep getting replaced because one of the bits of reference was like the lotus seeds and you get that um, tripophobia. I it's think horrible. is yeah. is the where you've got like a series of little holes, holes with like little teeth and stuff in it. So uh, I thought we could achieve some of that by having some of those teeth rot and and leave some of the holes behind. Um, 
it ends up being quite dark in the film, that sort of feature shot of 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 that that thing. But um, I don't know. I thought it was pretty pretty successful in it in checking those boxes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I quite loved it. Like when we were working on those shots, especially the tongue shots. The goal was to make it disgusting, um, and so in our animation dailies, that would that would always be the discussion, like push it as far as you can go to, to make us feel disgusting. And if, if we have a, an awful cringe reaction, then we've nailed it. Mm. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that yeah, yeah. It. That, so yeah, it was always you... like push it further, make yeah. it make it more creepy. Yeah, yeah make, make me look away from it. It's funny that that, is, that stands in pretty stark contrast to the reference. And, and I, I applaud the, the performers, um, you know, both internal and and on the client side, who, who just went all in on, on sort of this weird, pulsing sexual, writhing, and then sticking their tongue out, and of course, like a human tongue is nowhere near as intimidating. So it, you know, it, it some of that reference, while it was great for for the timing and intent, there's still like a, you, you know, it still made me smile. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. we can we can take that and and w- like. Yeah, it was really useful to understand the goal, and then and then we turned it into mm. something horrifying. Yeah, there were many more layers that were added on top of that reference. I remember the tongue was a big part of it, and then we added a lot of thrusting in the body motion to to help that sexual feeling even further. So yeah, you got a very kind of assaulted feeling in that run of shots. Yeah, how did you? Um, this is a genuine question. How did you? How did you feel like in your dailies, like? talking about that stuff and giving notes and yeah because it's kind of a I mean the whole movie is very much exists in the sort of hashtag me too space mm-hmm. and then to have to sit at the head of the table and give and these give notes, notes with these yeah. really explicit mm-hmm. you know this really explicit direction it's almost like you can't embark on a story like that that that's trying to make a comment you know for 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 good reason without you know, using some of that language mm. to kind of describe what the antithesis of the hoped-for outcome is. Like, how do you, how did you feel? Did you get used to it after a while? Or <laughs> We did, actually. Um, I'm very lucky. I had an amazing team of um, animators and motion editors. And, yeah, the whole motion team was great and extremely professional, I think. I think that's, um, yeah, the reason why this was so comfortable and fine to do. I think everyone approached it from a very practical standpoint. We were we were trying to embody what Roseanne wanted in this creature. And so, yeah, I even look back at the motion capture sessions, which we did a couple of, of early on. And um, I can see even in myself, like as we're directing some of this um, quite sexual content, like I see my face is just completely deadpan. I'm completely serious. And like you almost separate yourself from that um, sexual content in a way because you are trying to yeah just achieve what the director needed for that film so yeah I think it was it was sort of easy to (laughs) to separate in some ways but yeah that was a huge help to have a very professional team and um and yeah there would be days where I would give some quite sexual notes but um I think also quite carefully wording that and I think everyone understood what the goal was so yeah and I, I I always felt like we had like we had Roseanne's lead on that like that was the that was the that was the film that we were trying to make, and I, I think everybody kind of always, like you said, very professionally assumed positive intent and and understood the 
you know that that was kind of the kind of the journey we were on to get to that goal and Roseanne was just really candid about describing what she wanted which was which was great it like was she great. didn't yeah. she didn't sort of leave it to us to interpret like she would say some things point blank that were like okay cool that's that's the note we'll 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 go with that and and everybody was everybody was pretty cool about it i mean i think everybody was on the team enjoyed this show yeah um or they were lying to me. Um, <laughs> no, I agree. I think it was a great experience. Um, and we had quite a small team in motion. I think there might have been around 12 of us, six in animation and six in motion edit. And, and yeah, it was a very small SWAT team that just really got through work and it felt like, yeah, we had this little mission. And yeah, I just remember our, our meetings and the show being, there was something special about this project that, that felt really good because we had this small turnaround and um we were all very united in in the goal we were trying to reach so yeah yeah and i i think we had a we had a good balance of um you know uh, understanding the scope of the budget and the time frame and the the resources in terms of crew weeks as as manifest by number of by the limited number of people that were actually on the show but then you know also being being judicious about what could be achieved, but also not skimping on the things that, you know, well, actually, if we if we go back and do this, that'll, that shot will be better. I know we talked about this a little bit um, during um, production when we were working on it, but we felt that there was quite a raw feeling that came from the work. Um, just because, because there was a time restriction at times, this really raw quality of kind of not overthinking things and, um, yeah, with the work. Yeah, no, it was cool. We'll have to talk about the projection stuff. Yeah, cool. So uh, early on in the in the planning discussions, we all agreed that the DP and and the director had in mind, um, and I thought it was a cool idea to do projections on set rather than shoot everything from the. A, a large part of the film takes place in the Sperry turret, the the belly gun underneath the ventral side of the B seventeen. So there were there was an aerial shoot before principal photography that produced the footage that we looked at for pre-dawn and early dawn looks out the out the windows of the Sperry turret but the thunderstorm obviously is a is another matter to try and capture so we very quickly enlisted one map painter one CG soup and one comp soup and the three of them pulled together in a couple of weeks a thunderstorm environment through which we could fly, and we did a, a number of lightning passes that we could animate in comp so that we didn't have to re-render um, all these huge clouds. And so with the option to kind of alternate lighting and we, we set it up so it would be loopable, we got these side and, and rear and front-facing and downward-looking views that we could project to cover all the angles. And then the... Um, Construction actually built a three and a half sided psych. So it was like the back wall, two sides, and a bit of the floor. And then the projectionist had this 10 projector setup that just overlapped this whole, you, you know, quarter sphere of projection surface around the Sperry turret, which itself is uh, a sphere. And, but there was no footage from the aerial shoot that would cover all those directions. So 
we did sort of like a partial lat long of the thunderstorm sky where we're flying through it and it's just sort of unwrapping and projected through all 10 projectors at once. And then in terms of constructing the CG thunderstorm, you know, it's um, it's VDBs of, of massive clouds and then, you know, sort of a, an encompassing sky dome just so that there's there's a backdrop in every direction. And then just a camera moving through that and and a and a bit of a you know sort of ambient moonlight just to give a little bit of fill to everything and then a lot of four or five or six sort of just different positioned lightning um, lights and those are just on all the time in our in our renders as different channels and then we were able to animate the lightning flashes in comp afterwards so it's you know it's one render and then it's um, and then we could kind of adjust the timing and then a, a few elements to kind of stitch everything together and put a bit of sort of near ground atmosphere over all that. Uh, so so that's pretty cool. I I feel like the stuff we did could have held up to more scrutiny um, than it did, even though we managed to pull it together in a few weeks. So yeah, my hat is off to those guys for making that work so quickly. And then. Yeah, it just looked cool on on the on the projections. That's the first thing that comes to mind when you think like things that that caught you by surprise, like something that came out of left field. The first thing that jumps to mind is time actually. Because I think me and a lot of other people at Widow really strive for perfection and not saying that what we did wasn't great, but um, that's always quite a hard restraint to try and um, do the best you can in the time that you have available. So that's probably the biggest challenge on the show for us. Yeah, but I think we did a really successful job with the time we had. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it was great to see um, everybody kind of rise to and, and and adapt a little bit too in terms of like how we approach things like you know like I know the, the guys in like the lighting team was very small and the lighters approached things at a sequence level rather than a shot level and then same thing in compositing where you know a handful of of really seasoned compositors were just attacking these like groups of shots and just really really clean work as well like I'm no compositor but I was able to do a couple shots because I picked up you know I just picked off a couple shots that were had similar shots already underway and I could kind of cannibalize some of the some of the setup there and you know usually not usually but I think sometimes when there's that sort of more hasty more indie feel like organization kind of goes by the wayside and you're just kind of cranking through it. But um, In a way, also not, though. I feel like planning became more important and organization was very important. And it's quite amazing how restrictions like time really make people, you're forced to find a really creative solution. And I think that showed in every department. So it's quite amazing. Like, you know what your target was or, yeah, you're just working very efficiently to to get as much as you can, as much as you can in a, in a broad way. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the work that we were able to do with the restrictions that we had. I think the whole team did an amazing job and, um, yeah. 
I do want to say a big thank you to all the team that worked on Shadow in the Cloud at Weta. Um, it was a real pleasure working with everyone that worked on the show, and I think everyone worked really hard. So from every department, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot from us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to to everybody again from from start to finish, and everybody was super professional, but no one was uptight about it, and and every I think everybody had a, a lot of fun and did great work. Like it was definitely a non zero sum game of enjoyment and and you know still striving for quality without doing crazy hours or. No one, I think, got too stressed out. Maybe me a couple times, but <laughs> but Dave Dave Hampton managed that. Um, a huge thanks to those guys, our production team, for <laughs> keeping everything on rails, managing all the the A's, B's, and C's, and uh, making good choices about where to to really sell the the work we were doing, where to make the most of of the resource that we had. And our production team did a did a great job of keeping that on track without ever stifling the the creative process. Yeah, yeah, it was just a great team all around. You've been listening to Annika and Unter on Unsupervised. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>